Welcome to Episode 7 of Myth vs. Craft. My guest today is the distinguished jazz piano master, Dr. James Polk. His distinguished career spans over 60 years and includes a seven-year stint in the Ray Charles Orchestra, in which he was the organist and pianist, and later on the writer, arranger, and conductor. In addition to his notable accomplishments as a musician, Dr. Polk is also an outstanding educator. Whether it was as a high school band director, a professor of jazz studies at Texas State University, or a luminary in the Austin music scene, he's guided, motivated, and mentored countless musicians. I feel fortunate to have had the opportunity to sit down and speak with such a living treasure of jazz history. Here's our conversation. Dr. Polk, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate your time. Mm-hmm. You grew up in Corpus Christi in a family full of musicians. What are some of your earliest musical memories? My earliest musical memories was probably listening to my, my father. My father was what you call one of those barrel house mu- musicians, you know, playing back in the 20s and 30s. Is uh, uh, What they used to call those things, Jew joints. And uh, I had an uncle who played guitar, also played piano. And uh, I used to sit and listen to them play when I was maybe seven, eight years old. And I remember them. And I remember thinking to myself, one of these days I want to be able to do that, you know. Yeah, so that was probably my early experience. And also my mother. I was a grown man when I found out my mother had a, uh, an associate two-year degree in music. She finished St. Philip's College in San Antonio. It was St. Philip's College. I don't even know if it's still there now or not. But she, um, she finished that in, in voice. And she was on the road singing gospel when she was like seven, or eight, nine years old. And I, and I, I never knew. She never told me until I was grown. <laughs> I believe you started out playing piano, but your first instrument at school was the violin. Yes. Which you didn't care much for. Hated it. Why was that? <laughs> well, you know, one thing, you know, they told me when I was growing up that the, the strings on the violin was made out of cat gut. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I said, "Why did I was to think? Well, why did the cat have to give up his life to, mm-hmm. to, for me to play on his violin?" And it made all kind of screeching noises, you know. When you <clears throat> and my mother would put me out of the house and tell me to go back behind the garage to practice. <laughs> oh, that was her standard thing. But playing the violin, uh, but I had a music teacher in elementary school who said it was imperative that we do that. Mm-hmm. We had to learn something about music. That and I sang in a, we had what we call a little glee club in elementary school. So I did that. Later on, I believe you switched to the saxophone briefly and then the trombone. Yes. How do you think playing so many instruments helped shape your perspective on music and composition? I think it shaped my perspective in as much as I could relate how different instrumentalists would think of the instrument, you know, what they expected to get out of the instrument or get from the instrument, Right. being able to, to do that. And then also, uh, see, after I finished college, I played, I started out playing violin, and then I, I used to follow my granddad around. My granddad was a pawn shop aficionado. Mm-hmm. He went to all the local pawn shops around Corpus Christi. And one day on the weekends, I would do Saturdays especially, I would do that with him. And one Saturday, I saw this saxophone hanging in the window, this alto saxophone. And I told him, I say, 
and I called him Big Papa. I said, Big Papa, I want that horn. Of course, he would buy it for me then. So it was maybe a couple of months later, he finally relented and bought me the saxophone, and that's how I started on that, because anything to get away from that violin, you know. <laughs> so I started practicing on that, and uh, then uh, I practiced enough. So when I got out of the elementary school in the sixth grade, we had what we called summer band, the band director of the junior high and high school. Junior high and high school was together then. The school went from the seventh grade to the twelfth. Right. So uh, if you practiced good enough and you were good enough, you could get into the high school band, even though you were in junior high school. So I figured I wanted to do that. So I practiced real hard and learned all my fingering and everything on the saxophone. And we had went to summer band. And as soon as I got there, the band director told me he didn't need any more saxophone player. Mm. Oh, man, you, you're talking about a crushed little kid, man. I was hurt. So uh, I asked him. Well, he told me he needed uh, some brass players. He needed trombone players because mm-hmm. he had enough saxophone players. So, man. Of course, that crushed me, and I went home crying and stuff, and my mom asked me. She said, uh, what's wrong? I said, well, he didn't need any more saxophone players. So she said, well, what does he need? I said, he said he needed trombone players. She said, well, do you want to play in a band? I said, yeah. She said, so what are you going to play? I said, saxophone. She said, oh, no, no. <laughs> So she finally let me know that in order for me to get in the band, I had to play trombone. So and back to your original question, it, it would give me a perspective on how the other instrumentalists would think their approach to the instrument. Having had an approach to the saxophone, having had approach to, to the trombone, and my sister played clarinet mm-hmm. and drums. Wow. So she's older than me, so... I would sneak out behind the house with her clarinet, and she'd be looking for it, and I'd be out there, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, her drums, and the drums were just about rhythm patterns and stuff like that. So I, I did that, uh, learn at an early age what that was all about. Having learned so many instruments, was it evident to you at the time that you had a knack for picking them up fairly quickly? Uh, yeah, it it wasn't really evident, but I knew that I could do this. You know, I didn't know I didn't know why why I could do it. I didn't know what what it was all about, but I knew it came. It wasn't a big struggle for me to do this. And of course, when I finished high school and got into college, and surprisingly enough, I didn't go to college on a music scholarship. I went to college on a tennis scholarship. Really? Yes. <laughs> How did you find time for uh, for tennis? Well. I was the kind of kid that wanted to do some of everything, mm-hmm. you know. So I wanted to run track. I ran track. I tried football. That didn't work out. Those guys hit too hard. <laughs> I told them, I said, give me my horn back. Let me play my horn. So I was an inquisitive kind of kid, you know. So after I learned the saxophone, I knew the scales and, and stuff on the saxophone. So I learned the the valve trombone, which is the same as the trumpet, so that's a big part of the brass family. And then I learned the trombone, which was the bass cliff. That was the other portion of the brass family. And even though the tuba and other instruments are played in the bass cliff, the fingering is the same as on a treble cliff instrument. So it was very easy to switch over, just a matter of reading what the notes are, mm-hmm. you know. So the mechanics of the instrument is the same. So it was very easy for me to do that through school. And uh, I found out that I I enjoyed doing that. And of course, when I graduated college, I started as a band director, high school band director. 
And I quickly realized, how can you teach a student to play an instrument if you can't play it yourself? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so voila, there it is. You know, I, so when my off periods and stuff, at, when I was teaching school, uh, high school, I was a high school band director, my off period, I would get in there and experiment with the other instruments and try to find out how they worked and what the mechanics on that. Like one of the hardest, of course, was the clarinet and the flute, you know. But I learned the mechanics of the instrument. And so how can you tell a kid, you know, you're wrong or you're right, do it this way or do it if you can't do it yourself? I read in your biography that you started playing professionally at a pretty young age, at age 13. How did that happen? Well, I came up during, I was in, in, in a junior high school and high school in the 50s. So it was during what you call the doo-wop era when they had a lot of singing groups and stuff. And and I can remember as a kid, us standing in the, in, in the evening after school under the street lamps, trying to sing like the doo-wop groups and, and, and stuff like that. So that was a friend of mine who, I can't remember where he lived, but he didn't live in Corpus, but he came, to, his dad lived in Corpus, and his dad was a musician, saxophone player. So he would come to visit his dad every summer. And uh, we would gather over to his dad's house, some of the, some of the guys during the summer when we were out of school, and, and practice our doo-wop songs, you know, the platters and things like that. And, and uh, his dad heard us in there one day, and of course I'd be sitting down playing, playing the piano, you know. So his dad heard me one day, and he said, uh, Say, uh, my boy, he, he looked short and remember he had a heavy voice. <laughs> Mr. Butler. Mr. Butler said, say, boy, you play that piano pretty good there. I said, thank you, Mr. Butler. said, you want to play in my band? Oh, wow. I, I said, oh, no, I don't know, Mr. Butler. I said, I don't think my dad was going to let me do that because I was, at the time, I was probably about 13. And uh, so he said, you leave that up to me. Let me talk to him. So. He, he did. He came by my house and asked my dad if I could play in his band. Of course, my dad said, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want my son out there in those juke joints and loose women, alcohol and all of that stuff. said, no, no, no. So Mr. Butler said, he called my dad Pokey. Say, Pokey, I'll take care of that boy just like he's my own and let nothing happen to him. So you don't have to worry about it. So he kept on after my dad, man. He kept on. So dad finally said, well... Okay, Butler, because Dad knew I had this talent for playing. So he said, okay, Butler, if you promise you take care of my, I'm going to entrust you. See, I don't want nothing to happen to my boy. You see, don't you worry about a thing. Man. So we did. I remember, I remember just like it was yesterday. This is this club called the Green Frog Lounge. And they played there on Friday and Saturday nights, of course, the weekends. That was, the club stayed open until 12 o'clock on Friday and 1 o'clock on Saturdays. So, uh... I went by first Friday night. I went to the gig with Mr. Butler. Mr. Butler played saxophone. He had a drummer, a bass player. I played piano, and he had a female singer, Skooky. That was her name, and never will forget her. <laughs> so the first night we were playing, playing blues, you know, rhythm and blues and stuff. So we took out, played the first set, and took an intermission. And then Mr. Butler said, "Come here, boy." I went over there where he was doing the break. He reached off in his pocket and pulled out a little thing of old crow. So here, take a hit of this. I said, oh, no, Mr. Button. <laughs> no, no. You trying to get us both killed. <laughs> no, 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 no. So he never messed with me about that again, you know. And, and I played with him for a couple of years, you know. until uh, That's how I got started, basic playing professional. And uh, 
then from there, it just kind of blossomed out, you know. I played with other groups, and I can remember when I was about in the ninth or tenth grade, I was making as much a week as my dad was, just playing music. Wow. I read that only one radio station in Corpus Christi allowed a black disc jockey to play 30 minutes of music per day, six days a week. I also understand that your exposure to live jazz was limited because black artists didn't tour through the South very much because the money wasn't there, it was expensive, it was difficult to find lodging, and there were few clubs that would let them play. So how did you manage to find artists, and how did you seek out jazz, and how did you learn about it? I learned about jazz because there was this guy who lived about two blocks from the high school campus. And especially when I got to be a junior, I didn't, I kind of shunned eating in the cafeteria. You know, I said, well, I don't too much care for the cafeteria food. There was a little hamburger joint about two and a half blocks from the school. So I, during the lunch hour, I had scheduled my classes. You know, you could kind of schedule your classes when you got to be an upperclassman in high school. And I always scheduled my classes where I'd have a period off before lunch lunch and a period off after lunch. So that'd make my lunch hour be a couple of hours, you know. I did that I did that starting in, especially when I was a junior, you know, junior and senior year, I did it back there. So I would leave campus and walk down to the hamburger joint. So this guy lived up the street from the campus and he would be sitting out on his porch listening to jazz. And as I would pass by his house every day, I kind of slow down and listen because I wanted to say, what kind of music is that, you know? So one day, he stopped me. He said, hey, little old dude. So I said, he said, come over here. So I went over to his porch, and he was sitting on the porch, and he told me his name was Pot T. called him Pot T. I think his name was Ponty, but they, everybody called him Pot T. And he was a tenor saxophone player. He said, I see you slowing up every day. You listening to this music? I said, yeah, what kind of music is that? And he said, they call that progressive jazz. Of course, this was back in the 50s, you know. And uh, jazz was just about maybe 10 years old at that point, you know. And I said, progressive jazz? I said, well, who is that? And he said, that's Charlie Parker I'm listening to. I said, oh, really? And uh, he said, you like that music? So we struck up a friendship, so every day... During the lunch hour, I go get my hamburger and come back and sit on the porch with him. And we sit there and listen to music, you know. And so he told me, he said, well, you be getting out of school in a year or so. And I said, yeah, I got one more year. He said, uh, you want to learn something about this music? I said, absolutely. I, I like what I'm listening to. He said, well, go to Sam. Sam Houston was the college here in Austin, Texas. Two black colleges was here in Austin. Sam Houston was a co-educational college. And... Uh, Tillerson uh, College was an all-girls, all-female college. Mm -hmm. yeah. They merged in 1952. Of course, he didn't know that. Of course, I didn't either. 19, 1952, they merged and it became Houston Tillerson College, which is still in operation today. Right. So he told me, so if you want to learn something about that kind of music, go to Sam, because they had a lot of good musicians at Sam Houston, mm -hmm. which they did, you know, I found out later. So I was all hell-bent on coming to Austin, Texas to learn about, you know, how to play that kind of music. And that's, that's how I wound up in Austin, on his recommendation, you know. There were a lot of black musicians here then, man. Lots of black musicians. Lots of club members before integration happened, you know. Uh, 
And so there were a lot of uh, black clubs on the east side, you know, a lot of black clubs. And, of course, on the west side, too, there were a lot of clubs that played jazz, especially on Sunday afternoon, because Sunday afternoons, like from 4 to 8 or 4 to 9 or something like that, was kind of the the the, the jam session period all over town. Mm-hmm. So a lot of white clubs, too, had uh, jazz musicians in there playing on Sundays. You're not classically trained. No. But yet you became a jazz authority. I'm wondering how much theory did you pick up along the way? Well, going to college, you pick up you pick up theory. Whether you're a jazz musician or classical musician, you still have to take theory classes. Everybody has to take that. So I learned about theory, you know. In, in, in. But the difference between classical musicians and jazz musicians, the most classical musicians cannot improvise. Mm-hmm. They don't teach improvisation in classical music. Okay, jazz music is based off of improvisation, being able to create on the spot, make up as you go. It involves basically two things. It involves a great understanding or a knowledge of scales, all of these scales, and it involves a great knowledge of chords. And during my teaching, I used to tell my students, they really don't know which came first. It's kind of like the chicken or the egg. No one knows if the chords came first or the scales came first because you can get chords from scales and vice versa. You can get scales from chords, you know. So the whole thing, and even classical music is based off of scales and chords, but they don't use that because they don't improvise. Improvise means to take those two elements and to create melodies. All the improvisation is uh, uh, is creating melodies as you go. You're creating melodies in your head as you go, using those two elements. I found that to be fascinating, you know, because I didn't have to rely on the printed page to make music. If you rely on the printed page like the classical musicians do, you're not creating. You're recreating what somebody else already created, you know. And it's not much to be able to put into classical music other than your particular temperament or how you interpret the piece that you're playing, you know. Uh, A scale is going to be a scale in classical music, no matter how you play it. It's going to be that same scale. In jazz music, you can take that scale and do all, all kinds of things with it, you know create all different kind of melodies as you hear them. So I find that to be very intriguing, very, you know, I'm not relying on what somebody else did to create the sound or to create an idea that I want to create. At this point, were you interested in any other types of music, like the blues? You know, I started out playing blues, so I had a a good knowledge of where the blues was coming from and how it was constructed. The blues... Is 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 a is a simple form of music. Basically, the twelve bar blues. You got three segments of four bars each. You know, and I find out what to do with those four bars. You know, you do it if you want to think. Basically, it only has three different chords to it. You know, the one, the one four, four and five. If you want to do just straight blues, you know. And during those early years when I was playing with Mr. Butler, that's what we played. And then you had the sixteen bar blues. That kind of thing, one, six, two, five kind of thing. And uh, you you would use those 
basically that's where all of the blues came from during that period. You know, of course, as guys got a better in-depth knowledge of what chord structures mean and one chord can move to another. And of course, there's always the two, five, one progression, which is two, five, one and two, five progressions don't have to always move to one. They can move to other two fives. Mm -hmm. Also, you can have two fives all over the place, you know, Coltrane was a master of that, you know. He he found that out, you know. And uh, it was intriguing to me how you could use that and create your ideas using that structure. When you play jazz, you're creating off the spot on the cuff right then and there, you know. What you play is spontaneous, you know, using the structure, using the form of a song. And back during the forties and early fifties, jazz musicians would take pop songs that were written by other people and to interpret them, uh, in a jazz fashion, like Indiana, da, 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 band Indiana. Well, Donna Lee is based off of that. You know, they took that Charlie Parker took, he was great at that, taking a song and recreating the melody mm -hmm. based on a chord structure. And they found out that you could use you can use different chord structures to go different places in the song and make it real interesting. Nowadays, do you do you still enjoy playing straight up blues, or do you find it to be too constraining? Oh, I enjoy it all, man. You can't miss me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you touched on um, racial integration in Austin and the effect it had on on traditional live music venues in, in East Austin and the East Side in mm -hmm. particular. I think what happened. Uh, was that once the the rest of the city opened up in 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 many ways many of the of the clubs in the east side uh, suffered right many of them closed what what, did, what happened at the time well absolutely exactly what you said when i got here in in 1959 is when i came to austin now and it was still segregated you know uh there were a lot of clubs on the east side black clubs that had jazz, that had blues, you know, and uh, all sorts of stuff on the east side. Well, during that period of time, black people could not uh, go to clubs on the west side of town. You couldn't do it. The schools integrated in 1955. I mean, the, the, the bill was signed by Eisenhower in 1954 is when they said integrate public schools. Well, Corpus Christi never had a problem with that. In 1955, in Corpus Christi, schools integrated all over the city. And they gave it your choice. They said, we're not going to bus you. They didn't have busing when I was coming up in high school. Because they gave you a choice. You can go to any school you want to, as long as you get there. Uh, so that there was a, it's not a problem. It wasn't a problem in Corpus Christi. When I got to Austin, it was totally different. They had busing here in Austin, where they would take the black kids and bus them to white schools. They didn't bus the white kids to Anderson. Uh, black schools, they didn't do that. They decided, they tried to gerrymand the districts in Austin, whereas if you lived in a certain area, you would go to this school. What happened is they drew a line around Delwood. I don't know if you know where Delwood Shopping Center is. Mm -hmm. uh, it used to be over there. Well, all those kids within that area were supposed to go to Anderson on the east side. Parents were taking their kids and putting them in apartments out on the west side just to say that they had another address on the west side where they didn't have to go to that school. So consequently, they closed that school down in 1971. After 1971, uh, it became a little bit better 
as far as the black musicians was concerned and black people were concerned. You know, certain black people couldn't live in certain parts of the town. You just couldn't live in town. Matter of fact, I had a friend of mine who was a bass player from Philadelphia who was living in Austin, and he had a white girlfriend, and he lived out on, oh, what's the name of that? Enfield Road, mm-hmm. out on the west side. And he was living with her. And uh, he was pretending to be her gardener. <laughs> wow. It's a true story. So anytime you would pass by, if you saw him out there, he'd be out there mowing the yard and stuff. And like he was the gardener, <laughs> but he actually lived there. So the cops followed him one night after one gig. They followed him, saw him go there. So they got they got to him the next day and told him that if you're not out of Austin by six thirty, we're gonna kill you. So he came by my house with all his clothes and his base and everything. The cops said that. Yes, yes. So he left Austin that day. They told me if he wasn't out by 6.30 that evening, they was going to kill him. So he left and went on back to Philadelphia. I never heard of him again. That's a true story. So it was, it was kind of tough around here then. My understanding is that many black artists from Texas moved north precisely to avoid this kind of prejudice. What made you decide to stay? Did you ever consider moving north? Yeah, but uh, I had my first child when I was 21. I was still a senior in college. Mm-hmm. Actually, there was only but one thing for me to do. That was to get a job and support my wife and my daughter. That played a major part in my decision to stay here. You know, I wanted to go out on the road and travel with some bands and stuff like that, but I knew that, you know, I had a child to raise. You know, and I, my dad didn't leave me. Mm-hmm. You know, so I just couldn't see myself leaving my my kid. And uh, so that that was my that was the major decision for me to stay here. So the next thing for me to do, I could only be a teacher, maybe a doctor if I went to medical school and studied. Uh, what much else I could do, you know? That was only like maybe two people on the fire department and firemen, black black people. Black people just didn't, didn't have jobs around here then. So the basic only thing that you could do was was teach school. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I wound up teaching school. I believe you were the high school band director in Elgin, Texas. Yeah, yeah. What was that experience like? Well, when I left uh, uh, college, I I took the job down in Elgin as the high school band director. They had two high schools, white and the black. They hadn't integrated schools yet down there. And this was in 1962. So they hadn't integrated schools, so I took the job at the Black High School as the band director. And believe me, I had, you know, I had my troubles, you know, being the kind of person I was, militant. I was militant back there then, you know. Bring a, and I, and the, the, I had the band, I had a very small band, about 28, 30 band, band members, and the majority of them girls. Mm-hmm. Because you couldn't play in the band and play football, too. Mm. So I didn't have a lot of guys. Maybe I had maybe one or two guys in the band who didn't play football. So we had hand-me-downs. We had hand-me-down uniforms. We got the uniforms from the white band, white high school. We had hand-me-down books, mm-hmm. you know. We didn't get any, any new books. We didn't get any new band equipment. Uh, we had hand-me-down band equipment, you know. So everything was hand, hand-me-down. So in that year, they came out with what they call precision drilling. They still use it today. In other words, 
you see bands on the field and they'd be making different formations and mm -hmm. making different things. Well, they started that. That started in 1963, I think, the first year for that. I went to school, to, to summer school, at Texas A&I in Kingsville doing that, to start my master's program, to work on, with that. And I had to take a course in that, and I learned how to do that. So I was all excited after, after that summer was over with. I was going back and teaching. And I said, well, I'm going to try this. But in order to try that, you had to have a football field because you had to either march eight to five or six to five. What I mean, eight steps to every five-yard line or six steps to each mm -hmm. five-yard line. Well, I like the eight steps to, to the yard line because you could sync it with the music, basically. Mm -hmm. You know, So uh, I did that. But we didn't have anywhere to practice. We had a big open field out behind the school, but after school, the football team would go out there and practice. And by the time they finished, it was dark. Mm -hmm. No time for me to practice. I said, well, how can I do this? So I went up to the high school, the white high school, talked to the band director, Mr. Dushak. I said, I have gone to school and I've studied, studied uh, how to, to, to do, do, these, do these formations. And this is pre-computer, so you had to create your own. We had to, you had to do them on graph paper. Mm -hmm. So, And I uh, said, I've learned how to do this, and I want to experiment it. I want to try it out. Even with the small group I had, 30 pieces. I said, I can use my imagination to create stuff. So he said, okay. And we played our football games on, I think it was a Saturday night. They played theirs on a Friday night, and we played ours on a Saturday night. They practiced on a Wednesday night. His band did. The, the football stadium was right up at the White High School. So on Thursday night, the field was open. The field was nobody there. I said, well, how about if I use the field on Thursday night to practice my band? He said, it's fine with me. <clears throat> so we did. That Next Thursday night, I took my band up to the field. And uh, we practiced. He said, just make sure you turn the field lights off. I said, absolutely. So I took my band up there and practiced that Thursday night. Friday morning, principal called me in the office and said, uh, Mr. Pope, he said, we don't want you to take the, the band students up there at that white high school to uh, practice on that field. Said, Was this the principal at your yeah. high school? Yeah. I said, what? He said, yeah. I said, well, what's the deal? You see, they say they don't want you up there. I said, oh, no. So I got in my car then <laughs> and went up to the school superintendent's office. I walked in his office. And I said, what's the deal, man? You telling me that I can't bring my students up here to practice? I said, are we not part of this school district? He said, yeah. I said, well, so what do you think I'm going to do? We, I said, these are children, man. These are kids. Well, you think we're going to rape and pillage? Well, what, what, what do you think we're going to do? You know. So, well, it just creates a, that's what, No, no, you creating it. We're not creating nothing. We're coming up here to practice. As soon as we practice, we leave. We leave everything just like we found it. So, uh, he, they just, well, we just don't think you ought to be up in that part of town at night. I said, well, I said, I'll tell you what, you got a choice. I said, I got room enough back behind my school, but by the time the football team gets through practicing, it's dust dark, and then it's dark, and we don't have any lights out there, so I can't see. I said, you got a choice. I said, either you put some lights back there where we can practice, or I will be up here next week. <laughs> what did he say? The next morning, that was, that was, a, that was a Friday morning, 
Friday evening, the city power and light company was out there drilling holes, putting <laughs> lights up. That's a true story. They put lights up there. <laughs> wow. To keep us from going up and using the field. So that's what I was faced with. So I finally, I talked there about six years, and they finally uh, let me go, release me, due to duplication of teaching position. They finally decided to integrate uh. the high school. But I had already talked to the high school, the white high school band director, and he told me, he said, well, I'm going to teach you maybe a couple more years, and I'm retiring. He said, I'll tell you what, you take the junior high schools, it was two junior high schools, you take the junior high schools and the elementary schools, and in two years, you'll probably have your system in place. It'll take you maybe three or four years, and then you'll have your system in place. You know, And then when you get up to the high school, you can have, because we'd already worked it out. And then they let me go, see, duplication of teaching position. So that, that's when I left, man. As an educator, as a teacher, as a band director, and later on at Texas State, was it always easy to identify students who had tremendous musical potential? I mean, did they always stand out? Or yes. Did every yeah, now and cut that short, yes. <laughs> but, or did you ever find a diamond in the rough, meaning someone who at first sight didn't appear to be extraordinary, but through sheer hard work over time got there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would you would occasionally find those, uh, but that element is always there in them. You know that element is there in them. It just like you see a diamond in the rough. It just takes a little polishing to get it brought to the forefront. You know a lot of kids, especially you know I, I was in the jazz program down there. A lot of kids wanted to play jazz but didn't have a knowledge of what jazz was. And of course I didn't have any help down there at Texas State either. You know, a lot of kids didn't didn't know how to get that out it's it's there but you could see it you know the kid is talented and you 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 could also see a kid if a kid was walking around with two left feet i mean you know you know have, have you ever thought about you know doing something else <laughs> other than music uh some kids no matter how hard they try they just don't have it mm-hmm. some kids do but don't know that they have this potential. And then it's up to you to bring, them, bring it out, expose them to it. One of, one of the things that I would always recommend my students, if you like this form of music, the key to any of it is listening. You need to listen. Listen to what people have gone before you did, what they do, how they approached it. That's just a few elements you got to learn. Once you learn these elements, the things you need to know in order to approach this music, then it becomes a little easier, you know. And and uh, to this day, man, I, I still have contact with some of those students, and some of them walk up to me and say, I want to thank you so much for doing what you did, you know, what you did. Yeah, I, I, I get it all the time. Some of them I recognize, some of them I don't. <laughs> <laughs> You were part of the Ray Charles Orchestra for 10 years, eventually becoming the writer, arranger, and conductor. Mm-hmm. How, did the, how did you join the band? How did this happen? Uh, the story of Ray Charles, I was living here in Austin, and I had uh, since quit, I, yeah, I worked for IBM for 10 years. And I had to make the decision, do I really want to do this, or do I want to get back into music? So I decided... Yeah, I went to school to study music. I didn't go to school to study how to work at IBM, make money for somebody else, you know. 
finally I decided that, you know, the walls were closing in on me. I'd probably have gone as far as I could go in, in IBM. I was a buyer for IBM. I decided that, you know, if I stay here any longer, I'm going to go to the big IBM in the sky, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I really don't want to do that. So I decided to quit. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I quit. And things just start unfolding and falling in my lap. So I got a job playing as a happy hour. Mm-hmm. Playing happy hour Monday through Friday from five to eight, three hours, and and making almost as much money I was making at IBM. Wow. And then I started playing with another another band, put a band together, and I was playing with another band. So, you know, within the first four to six months, I was making three times as much as I, what I was making at IBM. Wow. I was making over fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars a week. Wow. Here in Austin during that time. I said, oh man, I why did not do this sooner, you mm-hmm. know. So that's 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 what was happening. And uh what happened with Ray Charles is that I used to have a band back in the sixties that played at a a club out on MLK, which was East 19th Street then. It was called the Hideaway Lounge, and we had the house band. And uh, what happened is that the trumpet player that used to play with my band was from San Antonio, but he had since moved to Los Angeles. And he had somehow or another gotten raised Ray Charles' band. Mm-hmm. So I was sitting at home one day, and my phone rang, and I picked up the phone, and it was him. He said, hey, man. He said, we in San Antonio. I said, yeah, we who? He said, well, I'm playing with Ray Charles now. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah, we're going to be in Austin Wednesday. And I think that might have been a Monday or something like that. So he said, why don't you come to the show? I said, I'll do that. And there used to be a place that called the Country Dinner Playhouse. It was a big building where they had bring-in shows and stuff like that. A nice place. And that's where Ray Charles was playing. So uh, I went out there. And uh, I saw my friend. And during the intermission, he took me back and introduced me to the band leader. Then I didn't get a chance to meet Ray, but he introduced me to the band leader. The band leader took my name and number. He said, yeah, man, let me have your name and number. So Smitty tells me, say, you're a good player. So he used to work with you. I said, yeah, yeah, he used to play in my band. He said, man, you never know. So let me have your num- name and number because you never know when these, these guys come and go. Mm-hmm. So sure enough, at fate would have it about two weeks later, I was getting up. And during then, I was playing a lot of golf every morning, you know, because and I got up and my phone rang and it was this guy. He said, hey, man, we just fired our piano player, man. Do you want this job? I said, what? He said, yeah. <coughs> he said, you want this job? You interested in it? I said, yeah, I'm interested in it. He said, well, good. Somebody from Ray's office will call you. So it just so happened that particular weekend is the weekend they open that jazz festival that they have in Galveston every year. Mm-hmm. My band opened that. So we went down there and played that, and I was gone Friday, Saturday. <coughs> got back Sunday night. Well, earlier that Monday morning, I was getting ready to go to the golf course again. My phone rang. I picked up the phone and it said, hello, is this James Polk? I said, yes, it is. He said, this is Brother Ray. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> so <coughs> he told me, say, well, Clifford told me you're interested in, in uh, playing in the band. I said, yeah. He said, yeah. Well, when can you leave? Can you leave tomorrow? I said, oh, no, man, I can't leave tomorrow. I said, I play a happy hour gig <laughs> and uh, if Monday through Friday. I just can't walk over that man's gig. I got to give him at least two weeks' notice, uh-huh. you know. So that was a pause, and I said, oh, Lord, I blew this, <laughs> you know. So Ray said, he said, you know, I appreciate that. 
He said, I wouldn't want anybody to walk off my gig. I'll hold a gig open for you for two weeks. Wow. So no audition. They basically went no off, audition. off your friend's endorsement. Right. Wow. So once you, you joined the band, was, was that intimidating or did you just hit the ground running? Oh, let me tell you about that. <laughs> I was to meet them in, in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania that Tuesday. We were, we were opening for Dion Warwick. Anyway, to make a long story short, I got to, to the airport. I, I, went, I flew all into, flew into Philadelphia. And from Philadelphia, they didn't have a flight flying into Valley Forge because Valley Forge is probably no bigger than St. Marcus, you know. Not very big. So I had to catch a bus out of Philadelphia to go to Valley Forge. Well, the bus was late. There was a lot of traffic on the turnpike and everything. And the band, the rehearsal was supposed to be from 3 to 5. And see, and I was supposed to get there like about 2, 2.30. Well, I, I walked into the hotel about 5 minutes to 5, and they was packing mm. up. Rehearsal was over with. So I didn't get a chance to even look at the book. And we were opening that night at 8 o'clock. So I said, oh, man. So I went on and got dressed. You know, you have to be in your uniform 30 minutes before hit time, you know. So I had to be dressed at 7.30. We were all dressed at 7.30, ready to hit it at 8 o'clock. So Clifford, who was the band leader then, would go get the songs that from Ray each set that we're going to play. You know, we're playing two shows. He came back with, this, with the song list. <laughs> and Ray traveled with the 26-piece 26, group, 17, 17-piece orchestra, 18 with him, five Raylettes, and his valets, and, of course, uh, the stage men. So anyway, we were all set, and uh, time for us to hit it. So send me out on stage, and I played the acoustic piano before he would come out. So we had about three, maybe four numbers to play before he would come out. So I got to the piano and was sitting there. I still hadn't seen the book, man. So I looked, and, the, and Clifford wrote, wrote the numbers. He just wrote the numbers down, and then you look in the book and pull, pull them out. <laughs> I pulled the first tune out, man, it's 32-bar piano solo. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard the song, man. Never seen it or nothing. I said, "Oh man!" So, and they counted off, and I mean, it was moving too. Mm -hmm. I said, "Lord, give me strength. Just give me strength." <laughs> so, I t attacked it, you know, vigorously, forcefully as I could, you know. Got through it. I went through it, and we did the show, and everything was fine. So the next night, same thing. Did you get any feedback after that? No, first show? no not the first show. That was Tuesday night. So Wednesday night, same thing. The first tune, 32 bars on piano solo. It was another song. But he put me put me under the gun, threw me under the bus the first thing. <laughs> Trial by fire. Trial by fire, man. So then uh, we went through that night, nothing. He didn't send. I said, oh, shoot. I know he's probably going to give me a pink slip and apple and bus ticket and go home. So Thursday... After the first, he did the same thing Thursday, but we did two shows. So during the intermission, he sent for me. I said, oh, this is it. So I went to his dressing room. I walked in. He said, say, hey, you the new guy, huh? I said, yeah. He said, you know, I hear you out there trying to upstage me. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> he just broke out laughing, man. And from that point on, we were 
we were the best of friends, man. So over over time, you your role within the orchestra expanded, right? You grew. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, what happened is we finished Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, and we went and did a week in Chicago, and we left Chicago and went to Europe. So we're in Paris. So in Paris, we were we would rehearse. Anytime we sat down, maybe four or five days, and didn't have to work, we would rehearse. So we were we were at this Holiday Inn in Paris in the basement rehearsing. So I had at, asked Clifford if it was okay if I write some music because I like to write, and I, he said uh, I had the band at my disposal, you know. So he said, "Yeah, by all means, do so." So I had just finished the chart. Herbie Hancock, Butterfly, do 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 do, you know that mm-hmm. one, and I just finished it. So when we finished rehearsal, I asked Clifford. I said, "You think we got time to run run this chart, man?" Clifford said, "Yeah, man." So I passed out the music, and you know, then with guys like that, you know, they just say, "Well, how fast you want it?" You know, it ain't no matter them not being able to play it. So they passed it out, and uh, we started playing it, and I didn't know that Ray was standing out in the hall. And he stand out there. He stood out there and listened to the whole arrangement. So, when we finished the arrangement, he walked in and he said, "Saul, which was the band leader during that time, he said, what, what song was that?'" And Clifford told him, "Said, what's a tune called Butterfly, Herbie Hancock's Butterfly?" He said, "Who wrote it? Says, who did it? Who's arranging that?" And Clifford told him, "It's the new guy. It's the new boy." <laughs> and Ray said, "I knew it. I knew it. I knew it." <laughs> like that. So. He bought that arrangement from me right off the spot, just like that. So that that just it just went from there, you know. And then before we got off the road that first year, he came to me. We were in Arizona, Scottsdale, Scottsdale, Arizona. And he called me and told me, "Say, well, uh, here's a cassette tape. I want you to do arrangement of this tune mm-hmm. because I'm gonna record it when we get doing off season." And it was some enchanted evening. Mm-hmm. So and it's, it's on YouTube. So I did uh, I did uh, some Enchanted Evening, and uh, I never heard it because I left Scottsdale and came back to Austin mm-hmm. because the tour was over. And they went on, and you recorded it. And uh, I never heard it until it came out on the, the album. Wow. And it, that's the first one I got nominated for a Grammy. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, I heard a story uh, about Ray Charles waking you up in the middle of the night. <laughs> Not the middle of the night, but uh, during the day. Well, see, one thing about blind people, I found out that, you know, he didn't know whether it was day or night. Right. He just And blind people have an insatiable uh, stamina because I found out that for you and I as sighted people to see, it takes a lot of energy to see. Mm. Blind people don't expel that energy because they can't see. So that what happens to that energy? It's internalized. That's interesting. I had never, I had never thought of that. Yeah, yeah. So they all that energy that it takes for you to see, they they're not expelling that energy. So that's why you see blind people always, <laughs> you know, moving and doing this and doing that because they have energy to burn, man. Mm-hmm. So he did too. And what happened a lot of times? I would go up to the studio, and his bill. He owned the building. The first floor was offices and things like that, and the second floor was the the business office and the recording studio. And a lot of times it would just be he and I up there just working, you know, just. And uh, he could work around the clock, man. And a lot of times I would work, man. I'd be sitting there 
<laughs> and I tell him, I said, hey, man, you going to take a break or we going to stop or what? He said, well, you sleepy or what? I said, yeah, I'm tired, man. He said, well, go, go in the office and lay down on the sofa. He had a big sofa like this in the office. I said, go down and lay down on the get you get your nap. And we'll, 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 we'll yeah, I'll do this. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay. So I go back in the office and stretch out on, on the sofa. It seemed like I'd be there maybe 15, 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. He coming up, hey man, get up. You know, <laughs> you what you gonna do? Sleep all day or sleep all night? <laughs> and then it would like be three or four o'clock in the morning, man. You know. So yeah, we missed one year we missed Thanksgiving, was it Thanksgiving or Christmas? We missed something, one of the holidays all together, because you and I were in the studio and we just worked around the clock. Yeah. And he would do that all the time, man. I've heard that he was incredibly gifted in the sense of of being able to compose and arrange and put something together all yes. in his head. Yes. You're talking about scary. Yes. That was, I was real intimidated when he f- first did that. He would have the whole entire arrangement in his head. I used to write, all I was was his hands. Right. You know, not even his ears. I was just his, his hands because I was writing them, writing them down. And, uh, well, his ears because he told me what to write down. Mm-hmm. But he told me everything, every dot, every accent, every everything. Have you ever met anyone else who even came close to that? No. 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 I mean, I got good at it for a while, you know, after being with him. You know, I could, I could take down. And we never used the piano. Never. So straight from his brain to his mouth to your ears to your hand? Yeah. Wow. We didn't use the piano, not to even double check it. Wow. We write it and he write it down, and, and then I'd, I'd write the score, and then, especially when we were out on the road, I'd have to copy the parts. Copy the parts and pass it out to the band, and they play it. Wow. Well, I remember one song, I can't remember what the song was, but we did it like that, and uh, I finished the song, and he told me to pass it out that night, and I passed it out, and we played it on the show. And I said, My goodness. <laughs> He was very intimidating, man, you know. But he used to tell me all the time, see, there's only two kinds of music, good and bad. There's only two ways to play music, right and wrong. I said, well, how, how do I know if I'm playing it right? He said, you play it like I tell you to. <laughs> <laughs> I want to touch on, on live performance. You play every Monday night at the, or most Monday nights at the Continental Club Gallery. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I went to your show a couple of weeks ago, and I was blown away by the energy in the place, both, of course, being generated by the band and mm-hmm. just the response of the crowd. And and it was just an extraordinary experience. What does performing live mean to you? Everything. <laughs> That's where I can put it. Performing live means that if people are there listening to what you're doing, that means that they care about what you, what you perform, what you're playing. And you care about it because you're there doing it. And it's something that's important to you. It's something that you're born with that's in you. I, I can't explain it other than I've been involved in music my whole life. So it's something that's just in me. And, and uh, to see people enjoying what you do is, is a gift. And it's a, it's a very, it's a turn on, I guess you might say because uh, th- that's what it means, sort of everything, and it keeps you energized, it keeps you going. You know, that's reading a lot of musicians just 
seemed like they just live forever, man. That you, Sonny Rollins, you know, he's 80, what is it, 86, 87. Mm-hmm. Lou Donaldson, 90 years old, man, still going. Disturbed by U.B. Blake, you know, the piano player U.B. Mm-hmm. Blake. You know, he was, when they interviewed him when he was 100 years old, he said, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I'd taken better care of myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's just, it's something that you can't explain. It just gives you a, a good feeling to know that somebody else appreciates what you're doing. How much does the audience affect your enjoyment of any given performance? If people are with you, or if they're enjoying what you're doing. For instance, there are a lot of places in town. The, 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 the gallery is not as bad, but the Elephant Room, for instance. People don't come there to listen to music. They come there to associate with one another because it's supposed to be the hip place to be. So they, 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 they verbally talk and they talk about everything other than they don't not even listen to what you're doing. So it's you background know? music too. Though. Yeah, it's background music. That's that's kind of a turn off. That's not really what you want from them. The difference, and that's the difference between other countries, Europe, for instance, and he in 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 America. It used to not be that way in Austin. Austin used to be a, a when you played, people would be attentive to what you're doing. But somehow or another, back in the 70s and 80s, it changed, you know. But people in Europe, even today, they are very attentive. They sit and listen. If you go to certain places in New York City, man, they'll put you out if you talk, you know, if you're talking. And, and, uh, I've heard people, t- even the audience would turn on the cat, the, the bartender would be ringing up a sales, and they turn around, shh. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before. It, um, I, I've heard artists talk about what it's like to go to Croatia or South America and go places where audiences perhaps aren't as jaded because they haven't been exposed to that kind of music and that level of act or variety of act and how sometimes they just seem that much more attentive and appreciative because it's it's so special to them. Mm. Well, I think different parts of the world appreciate artists and what it's what is involved in being an artist. And to be able to produce something, it's been my experience to know that at least 80 to 85% of the people that come listen to you don't know what you're playing anyway. Mm-hmm. So people come to look at you for different things. They might look at your mores, uh, how you acting when you play. Well, I had a lady tell me, yeah, I like those red socks you had on. <laughs> Not what I was playing, but she was looking at my socks, you know. <laughs> so that kind of situation involves people that are not really paying attention to your music. People in the European countries or other countries other than the United States, the older countries that are older than the United States, have more of a history of listening and respecting the music and the artists because music was going on for, for centuries in Europe before it even happened here. You know, so And other parts of the world also. It's not about the attitude of people that come to listen to you play. It's about me. It's about here. Look at me, you know, not what you're doing, you know. So, yeah, that's that's kind of a turn off. What is your assessment of the state of jazz in 2015 and its future? It won't change. <laughs> that's my assessment. I might have the figures wrong. Uh, jazz has all been, always been one-tenth of one percent 
It has always been there. But the thing about it, it has always been there. Mm-hmm. So rock and roll, for instance. Rock and roll is not what it used to be. Hip hop came along. You know, that's nothing new. That's not new, man. Hip hop and rap, that's nothing new. In studying music, I found that they were doing that back in the 18th century. Wow. You know, so that's not, nothing new. But the focus, uh, disco. Mm-hmm. You know, they got rid of disco when they went and burned all of those CDs and stuff, mm-hmm. you know. Well, what group of people could burn and, and just do away with music, period? But jazz has always been jazz. Louis Armstrong, Buddy Bolin, and those guys down in New Orleans, New Orleans started jazz, you know. And if you want to back up, you know, music came from from Africa, basically. It came from the slaves who were working out in the fields, you know. They would use music to communicate, songs to communicate. And uh, from there, it turned into the blues, you know. The formula for the blues is still used today, man. It's just it's three basic things to, to create a blues. You have uh, a subject. You repeat that subject, and then you have a conclusion. Four bars each. That's 12 bar blues. And the beautiful part about jazz, I can see if they can turn the rhythm around and, and play with the rhythm and, and, and stuff like that. But jazz has always been jazz. Nothing else. A lot of other forms come and go. Jazz will not change. It's, it's, it's going to be jazz forever. It's not going to be as big as anything else. It's always been a small appreciated form of music and it always will be it's appreciated worldwide if you go to japan which i've never been but you go to japan the japanese are very good copyists man it's cats over there can play like parker man <laughs> <laughs> all around the world you can go all over the world and people are playing jazz it's a appreciated art form everywhere in the world and appreciate the appreciation for jazz is much better elsewhere than here this is the last stop on the totem pole, man, for jazz. How ironic, having having been born here. Born here. And people don't appreciate it, man, not like they should. Just a handful of people appreciate it. Well, like the handful of people that come to the gallery. Well, I very much look forward to my next visit. Uh, All I'm, right. I've really enjoyed uh, our conversation. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Great, man. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot to me if you can take a moment to visit iTunes and rate this podcast. Until next time.